Syrian Tales, Episode 2, Crossroads and Conquests. Our story picks up around 1800 BCE. It was approximately 500 years after the fall of the city of Ebla, and now another city in Syria was growing strong. This was the city of Mari, and it is one of the greatest of the ancient Syrian communities. From Mari, we are able to see a second golden age in the ancient life of the Syrian peoples. The city of Mari sits on the lower Euphrates River, near a point where two branches of that river converge. Mari was ideally placed to control boats sailing down the river after they had emerged from one of the two branches. They had to pass by the city of Mari on their way up or down the Euphrates. The Marians, therefore, exerted a strong influence over this section of the river. Their livelihood was tied to this point. Mari is named after a god who was worshipped there. His name was Mar or Mer, which means tempest or wind. So Mari is the city of Mar or the city of the storm god. In this respect, it is like many Syrian or Mesopotamian towns. If there is one thing that the ancient Near Eastern religions loved, it was a storm god. But that's a story for another day, I think. Did someone say Syrian Tales Season 2? Hmm, we'll see. The city of Mari was much like that of Ebla in some respects. It was wealthy, with many interests in trade, and in turning raw materials into finished goods. Its inhabitants were well-dressed, with the women apparently sporting ornate hairstyles and fabulous dresses or robes. Figurines uncovered in the city show the ladies with towering hairdos and heavy robes. Granted, these probably depict the noble, wealthy ladies, but it does suggest that the people of Mari, on some degree, were enjoying a great deal of prosperity, with luxuries coming in regularly. Now this is all stuff that we saw in episode 1, with the fabulous prosperity of the city of Ebla. What sets Mari apart from other communities is the wealth of its particular written record. Ebla left behind extensive records of its economy, but Mari leaves behind a rich and varied corpus of texts detailing a lot about ancient Syrian society, diplomacy, religion, politics, and life. In particular, one story emerges above all. It is the story of a king of Mari and his difficult relationships. It is a tale of overbearing fathers, troublesome neighbours, and a long-suffering ruler who wanted nothing more than to enjoy the splendours of the city he ruled. This is the tale of a man named Yasma Adu. Yasma Adu was king of Mari around 1780 BCE. He shows up in a series of letters which are preserved in the archaeological records of the city. From these letters, we are able to get a surprisingly good glimpse at the life and priorities of an ancient Syrian monarch. For example, Yasma Adu was a publicly pious ruler. Quote, I speak to the fearsome god Nergal, who has ordered me to do so. Ever since my birth, nobody who has sinned against God is still present. Everybody respects the command of God. Long ago, two kings concluded a solemn treaty sworn by God, but one king committed a crime against the other. You learned this and questioned him, 
You went to the side of the righteous king against the wrongdoer, and you destroyed his fortress and captured his son. When the son ascended the throne, he did not commit a crime on account of his father's misdeeds. So it was also that a king of Mari did inappropriate things. He destroyed your temple, which former kings had built, and replaced it with the house of his wife. You, O oh God, came and questioned him. Then his servants killed him. You learned this and restored the whole of the Euphrates region to the hand of King Shazmiadad because of the misdeeds of that blasphemous king of Mari. Shazmiadad took me and installed me as king of Mari. I, Yasma'adu, request but this of you. Former kings wished for a wide land, a vast territory. I wish for life and offspring. Thus says Yasma'adu, your servant and worshipper. I love this letter. It might be one of my favourite letters that I've ever come across from the ancient world. And I love it because it's like a letter. Instead of the ancient royal inscriptions that we get from ancient Egypt, which are very formal, very high-flung language, Yasma Adu's appeal to the god is very direct, almost as if he's sending him a message straight up. He's written it down on a tablet, given it to the postman, and that man is off to take it to the god. There's something about the personal style of this invocation that just warms my heart. Now Yasma Adu is an interesting chap. Yasma Adu was a sensible man. He took the public line of being a pious ruler, attributing his power to the influence of a great god. This was the god Nergal. Yasma Adu styled himself as an avenger of Nergal, putting down any who blasphemed or sinned against the Lord. On top of that, he described himself as one of those rare rulers whose respect for Nergal far outweighed his political interests. He did this by recounting two stories of kings who came before him, but who were impious and did wrong against God. Of course, being the all-powerful lord that he was, Nergal threw down these wrongdoing kings, and in the process he set in motion the chain of events which eventually would bring Yasma Adu, Nergal's most pious servant, to the throne of Mari. To double down on his point, Yasma signed off with a little idea. The idea that he, the pious ruler who loved Nergal so, did not even ask for great wealth or power from his god. Instead, he just wanted to live a long life and have many children. What a good-natured man, right? Of course, we believe you, Yasma, don't we? You're so modest, surely your ambitions are reasonable and humble. Really, what more could a king like you wish for than a long life and many children? Well, Yasma may not actually be exaggerating too much on that last point. The king's reputation has come down to us as a little bit of a playboy. Rather than waging wars, Yasma seems to have preferred whining and dining. More than conflict, he preferred the couch. How do we know all this? Why, we know it from his personal correspondence, of course. Yeah, that survives beyond just this letter. Yasma Adu left behind an archive of letters. Letters mainly sent to him from other kings, with one king in particular standing out above the rest. Yasma Adu received a lot of letters from his father, 
who was none other than the king of Assyria. Assyria was a mighty empire in what is now northern Iraq. It dominated political affairs of the day and had a great influence in many different states. Sometimes its rulers appointed puppet kings over smaller communities. This is what had happened at Mari. The Assyrians had come to dominate the city, and Yasma's father had put him on the throne. Yasma's father was named Shamshi Adad, and he sent his son a great many letters. Quote, Letter 1. Speaking to Yasma Adu, so says Shamshi Adad, king of Assyria, your father. I wrote down on this tablet a copy of a letter that I sent to my brother Ishi Adu, king of Katna, and I am now sending this copy to you. Hear it, and write a similar letter to him on a new tablet, and send it to him. Here is the copy of my letter. Shamshi Adad speaks to Ishi Adu, my brother. I heard that you dispatched my daughter-in-law back to me safely and that you treated my servants well when they stayed with you. My heart is very happy. Now, concerning the message you sent to me, saying, in all sincerity, saying, My enemy Sumu-Ipu attacks me constantly. That matter is not important. Your lands which are near his should be gathered together in strongholds. I have assembled many troops from different cities. Our allies will declare war on Sumu-Ipu. I will make ready to go and fight. Our allies and I will cause Sumu-Ipu difficulties and turn his attention away from you." Just to clarify, there were three people involved in this situation, and a political crisis going on in the background. It's a little bit complicated, but I'm going to do my best to lay it out. Essentially, Shamshi, the king of Assyria, was using his family and political connections to gather an alliance. That alliance would aid a third party, the king of Katna, against a rival. Yasma Adu, the king of Mari, was being asked by his father to join this alliance and to give assistance to the king of Katna in his hour of need. Now, Yasma Adu was bound by blood to assist his father in whatever he asked. Not only had the king of Assyria placed Yasma on the throne of Mari, he had also arranged a marriage alliance between Yasma and another city. So there were many obligations and duties going on in the background of these situations. The son was obligated to perform on behalf of his father. As we'll see in a moment, this situation seems to have occurred rather frequently. In fact, Mari seems to have been often involved in the wars and conflicts raging far away from its own territory. I guess families just don't band together like this anymore, do they? Shortly after he arranged the alliance to help Katna, the king of Assyria wrote to his son again. A messenger hurried into the palace of Mari, and King Yasma Adu opened the letter of his father Shamshi. It was another request. Quote, letter 2. Speaking to Yasma Adu, thus says Shamshi Adad, your father. Concerning the hostages from the city of Ya'ilanum, I told you to keep them in your home, as it seemed like peace with Ya'ilanum might follow soon. There is no peace now. In fact, I am planning to conquer Ya'ilanum. Give orders, these elite sons of Ya'ilanum, each one of them who is with you must die tonight. Guards, 
worries and provisions for them will no longer be necessary. One must prepare graves for them. They must die, and they must be buried in the graves. Damn, Shamshi Adad did not muck around. It's one thing to ask your son, whom you did put on the throne, to go to war on behalf of a mutual ally. That's good politics. That's meeting your obligations. It's quite another thing to ask that son to commit an act of despicable betrayal, to take hostages whose safety he is responsible for until the situation is resolved, and simply kill them. Granted, Shamshi Adad had his reasons. It seemed like war was now inevitable with the community in question. But you have to wonder, did Shamshi Adad indicate that he was going to do this to his enemies? Or did he simply act and inform them later? Either way, this was a brutal situation, but we can only assume Yasma Adu did it. Unfortunately, Shamshi was not done yet. He also had requests for how Yasma was to deal with the innocents who were also involved in this situation. Quote, Concerning the maids that are with them, take away their gold and silver, and have the maids conducted to me. There are also two female singers. Detain these women with you, but have the maids sent to me. Do it. End quote. That must have been messy. With diplomacy between Assyria and the kingdom of Ya-Ila-Num breaking down, Yasma Adu was now dragged into the sordid business of hostage killing. On his royal father's orders, Yasma was to kill those he was hosting in his town, to take their gold and silver, and to send their maidservants back to his Assyrian father. Two singers accompanying the hostages could stay in Mari. Everyone else would either be deported or die. Dark days. I'm sure Yasma Adu followed this order without question. After all, these sorts of practices were harsh but necessary in the age of constant conflict and discord in Syria, 3,800 years ago, anyway. Sadly, we have to remember that Shamshi Adad and Yasma Adu were, in some ways, better behaved than the militants of today. We begin this morning with the grim news of another execution from the terror group ISIS. CBS News correspondent Holly Williams is in Kirkuk, Iraq this morning. The video released by ISIS does appear to show the beheading of Kenji Goto, a Japanese journalist captured by the extremists late last year. That's the assessment of the Japanese government. ISIS had offered to release Goto in return for a failed female suicide bomber who's on death row in I was tempted to editorialize on this situation, but I think that audio clip speaks for itself. Yasma Adu, back in the Bronze Age, was obliged to obey his father on any request that Shamshi Adad might have had. But you have to wonder if at some point Yasma Adu began to feel like his obligations to Shamshi were becoming distasteful. The conflict in support of Katna was ramping up, and now Yasma was being asked to kill hostages? Yikes, as if one headache were not enough. But that was not the end of Yasma's concerns. The crisis at Katna, which we heard in the first letter, continued into the following year. For some reason, Yasma Adu had not yet departed to assist in the campaign. Perhaps he was gathering his soldiers, or perhaps he was dragging his feet a bit, hoping the conflict would end before he needed to get involved. Either way, Shamshi Adad was getting impatient. 
A third and final letter now crops up. In this case, we get a true feel for the relationship between Yasma and his father. It seems like Shamshi Adad may have been one of those you-can-do-better fathers. You know the kind, the one that's always pointing out how well your siblings are doing, with all the subtle jabs that follow. Before we leave Yasma, let's enjoy one last glimpse of the demanding words of an ancient royal father. Quote, Letter 3. Speaking to Yasma Adu, thus says Shamshi Adad, your father. When the army was gathering, I sent your brother Ishmedagan to the land of Ahazum, and I myself returned to the capital. But while the army was gathering, the land of Ahazum heard about it and took a decision. All the troops of that land gathered together and took up position against your brother Ishmedagan. Well, Ishmedagan set out for Ahazum. All the troops of that land came out in front of your brother to give battle. They did battle, and he defeated them. He rounded up the people of Ahazum. Not a single man escaped. And that very day he captured the entire region. This victory is great for the land. Be happy. Here your brother has achieved victory while you are lying in Mahari amongst women. Be a man when you go with the army to Katna. Just like your brother has set a great name, you as well must set yourself a great name during the campaign to Katna. Ah, thanks, Dad. Always putting the pressure on, eh? It's not enough that Yasma was gathering soldiers to aid Katna, and then secretly killing hostages from another city. Now Shamshah had to trumpet the achievements of his brother? I bet he'd been doing this since childhood, pitting one child against another, making them compete for the sake of the father's love. I have to say, I kind of pity Yasma here. Even if he was lazing about in his palace, you get the sense that Shamshi Adad was not the most generous father. Although he had given Yasma a prestigious rule in a major town, and that was no trifle, the demands still came thick and heavy. Eventually, you have to wonder if Yasma could ever live up to Shamshi's expectations. That is the last we hear of Yasma Adu. Not long after these letters were composed, the dynasty of Mari shifted. Afterwards, the letters involving Shamshi Adad and Yasma Adu disappear. So it's time to say farewell to Yasma Adu and to Shamshi, and to move on to the next phase of Mari's glorious history. When we return, we explore a new dynasty and phase in the cultural legacy of Mari. It is a time of great prosperity which might justly be called the second golden age of the Syrian cities. Welcome back. The reign of Yasma Adu ended with his death in about 1775 BCE. This was perhaps not a natural death. In a twist of political fate, the death of Yasma's father, Shamshi Adad, 
led to the destabilization of the Assyrian kingdom, and a breakdown of peace throughout the region. Yasma's brother, the all-conquering Ishmael, was put onto the defensive, and conquered no more. Yasma Adu, meanwhile, found himself facing enemies at home. In about 1775 BCE, Yasma Adu disappears from the record, and the throne is taken over by a new political dynasty. This was the dynasty called Lim. It had actually ruled in Mari before, once upon a time, before losing its power. Now, the Lim family was back, and the new lord was here to rule. The new king of Mari in 1775 was named Zimri Lim. He is the last king to appear in the written record of Mari, and he is the last king of Mari altogether. In his day, we see the last flourishing of the city, before it all went swiftly and suddenly to hell. Like the people of Ebla, those of Mari were well connected. They traded extensively with cities around them, and, more importantly, recorded the relationships which they formed. Like the records from Ebla in episode 1, the archives of Mari document primarily trading relationships. But, unlike the records from Ebla, it seems as though the Marians had taken more safeguards around the practice of trade. By the time the Mari records show up around 1800 BCE, there was a new type of official floating around the region. These men had a very broad set of skills, being alternately envoys, personal attendants, guards, and military leaders. These men were called the Sukkarum, and they seem to have been the Syrians' answer to the difficulty of protecting their growing trade wealth. Sukkarum are shadowy in the record, but enough survives to reveal some of the things that they did. From various letters sent between Syrian cities, we see Sukarum acting as overseers for the wadis, the old riverbeds used as roads. We see them as guards for the harvest. One letter refers to the Sukarum being in attendance while the harvest is gathered to the stronghouses. In another, the Sukarum are used as notaries, witnesses to oaths sworn by one man to another. Effectively, the Sukarum acted as trusted overseers of order, kind of like militarized justices of the peace. Speaking of militarized, the Sukarum also acted as military leaders, gathering men together for the purposes of work or war. They acted on the authority of higher leaders, but they worked almost independently, gathering the required men, and sometimes women, together for the necessary task. Interestingly, Sakarum were not strictly male. References survive to suggest that workforces of men and women were overseen by both male and female Sakarum. The Sakarum inspected the workers of their respective genders and determined their fitness for service in work or war. In other words, women could be an active part of the organizational class in Marian society, overseers and organizers in their own right. The Sukarum had a variety of roles, but they might best be termed as the sheriffs or constables of their day. They could serve high officials, but also act on their own. They might guard wealth or caravans, but could also lead military bands if necessary. It is not hard to imagine them as a sort of proto-constable, riding around their cities and roads, accompanied by warriors, making sure the law was enforced. When the law was broken, 
and the Sukarum were not necessarily able to resolve the situation, it seems that disputes often got escalated to the highest local authorities. In one situation, we even hear about disputes that the Marians got into with fellow cities. The dispute was, as it always is, to do with wealth, with allegations of wrongdoing, and a very uncertain set of circumstances. Which is how we come to a letter written by the king, Zimri Lim, defending one of his subjects from some criminal accusations, and making a few of his own. Zimri Lim? A message to Yarim Lim, from Zimri Lim, your son. Uh, you have written to me, saying, This man, of Mari, stole silver, gold, and precious stones from the city of Hazor. As a result, the people of Hazor have detained a trade caravan from my city and the persons who came to trade, all on account of that robbery. Well, Yarimlim, this man has not brought any silver, gold, or precious stones to me. You see, at the city of Amar, that man was seized and violated, nay, robbed of all that he was carrying. And on top of that, the sealed document which proved that he had bought those goods, that document was taken from him. Indeed, that man fled to me in order to save his life. You, Yarimlim, should write to the city of Amar and investigate. Then may the belongings of that man be taken to you. Zimri Lim, you cheeky little man. Not only did the king of Mari defend his subject against all accusations, he even presented a slightly preposterous story that explained everything that was going on. Of course the man had not stolen those items from Hazor, he had bought them in the town, but on his way home he had been robbed, and at the same time he had lost the receipt which proved he had bought those items. I mean, even today, you kinda see through this, right? Well. We're not sure if the ancient king bought it, because we don't have the reply to this letter. Which is really unfortunate, because I'm desperate to know whether the other man accepted it, or extended Zimri Lim the literary equivalent of a middle finger. Unfortunately, we may never know. Life in the ancient Assyrian lands was tough, but it could be prosperous. The Marians, it seems, were incredibly well connected thriving on communication and trade between themselves and those on their borders. And why not? The region is an absolute godsend to traders. Syria has plenty of open space, rivers for quick movement, and it is at the crossroads of several different regions. There is the Mediterranean to the west, Canaan and Egypt to the south, Mesopotamia in the east, and Anatolia in the north. These are all regions that sported strong peoples, powerful kingdoms, and good opportunities for trade. Mari, centrally located in this area, was poised to prosper from many different trade routes. Of course, this kind of prosperity, looked at geographically, presents its own problems. Conflicts arose between the city-states and kingdoms in Syria, but eventually, outsiders also began to look to this region as a potential source of tribute and wealth. For some, the temptation of cities like Mari was simply too great.
The cities and communities of Syria were prosperous and well-connected. Naturally, they frequently raided one another, or fought amongst themselves. Different dynasties would try to subjugate their neighbours, and some of these were successful. But the most successful of all of these were a people called the Amorites. The Amorites are not a tribe or single people. It seems to be a catch-all term for people living in a certain area, which is the area west of the Euphrates. Amorite, you see, translates to Westerner, and it was coined by people living in the lands of Mesopotamia. So to them, everything west of Mesopotamia, i.e. Syria, was Amorite. Today, Amorite has become a general term for a large population of nomadic groups, pastoralists, and even just urban folk who lived in the area, but did not form a specific kingdom. Now, the Amorites were not really well liked. By their nomadic nature, they were disruptive to settled, urbanized people. Moving from place to place with their flocks and their herds, the Amorites made poor subjects for kingdoms. They were hard to tax, and were viewed with suspicion by groups trying to establish military and political dominions. The problem is that nomads wander. Kingdoms require stability, so the two are innately in tension. Unfortunately, the cities of Syria and Mesopotamia have had the last word. Since urbanized communities were the ones producing written records and literature, the settled urban cities have given us the skewed view of the Amorite people. From early on, we see settled people in Mesopotamia reacting against the Amorites with hostility. For example, King Shugli of Ur, a Sumerian city, constructed a massive wall to keep the Amorites out of his kingdom. Kind of a Great Wall of Sumer thing. He was trying to protect his prosperous heartlands from the ravages of these foreign nomads, these bad hombres who were coming into his territory and causing trouble for the locals. Unfortunately, Shugli did something stupid. When he built his wall, he built it across open territory, and didn't put anything at either end to make it complete. Instead of using a river or mountain or even a fortress to anchor the wall, he just built it in an open space. So what did the Amorites do? Well, they just walked around. Talk about a useless defense. Other commentators were not much better than the Sumerians. For example, a Babylonian writer described the Amorites like this. Quote, the Amorite, he is dressed in sheepskins. He lives in tents in the wind and the rain. He does not offer sacrifices. Armed vagabond in the steppe, he digs up truffles and is restless. He eats raw meat, lives his life without a home, and when he dies, he is not buried according to proper rituals. End quote. Hmm, not the nicest appraisal. This writer badmouths everything. How the Amorite dresses, where he sleeps, how he worships or doesn't, how he acquires food and resources, what he eats, and how he is buried. Basically, it's a full-on takedown of the stereotypical Amorite. Well, the joke is on the Babylonian, because in a fantastic twist of history, the Amorites eventually took over Babylon and began to rule it. Ironically, they produced some of Babylon's greatest rulers. Over the course of several centuries, Amorite peoples spread throughout the Near East, settling in different areas and setting up new communities. This was a slow process of random settlement, 
with pastoral peoples setting up homes in new places and becoming properly established communities. One of the settlements that they came to was Babylon, which is near modern Baghdad in Iraq. Now, they didn't found Babylon, they just settled in the region. But their settlement led to a population boom in the region, which, coupled with increased agriculture, helped push Babylon higher and higher until it became a powerful city-state. Soon after, the Amorites found them rising within Babylonian society. Not long after that, they were ruling the city. An Amorite leader named Sin-Mubalit took the throne of Babylon in 1812 BCE. We're not sure how he did this, he just did. He ruled for 20 years, and then remarkably he abdicated, handing the throne over to his son. Now this would be remarkable even today, but in the Near East, it's practically unheard of. Ancient kings do not usually pass their power on willingly. At best, they appoint their sons as co-rulers as a transition. Well, Sin Mubalit was apparently a different class of ruler. His son would build on that tradition handsomely. Sin Mubalit's son was a little old ruler named Amu Rapi. Today, you might know him better by his Akkadian name, Hammurabi, as in the Hammurabi, one of the most influential rulers of the ancient world. Hammurabi, without going into too much detail, was the most successful of all Amorite rulers. He expanded his kingdom, reformed its government and laws, and set himself up as a model for capable rule of the time. He also attacked and destroyed Mari. The Amorites had spread across the Near East, settling in various areas, and in the case of Babylon, becoming rulers in their new homes. Unfortunately, because the Amorites were not a single people, but rather a general term for any tribe of pastoral nomads west of the Euphrates, they had no loyalty to one another, or any sense of a shared identity and kingdom. That's perfectly natural. It's actually a misnomer that we even call them the Amorites. Really, we should just call them the thousands and thousands of different kinship groups moving throughout this community. Amorites implies unity, but these people were not unified. So, the misnomer is in the term. The Amorites in Babylon soon began to expand their influence towards Syria. Their kings led expeditions out of Iraq and across Mesopotamia, eventually coming to the Euphrates River. Crossing over, they entered into the land we call Syria, and, naturally, began to compel tribute from the local people where they could. City-states faced with the might of this full kingdom decided usually not to resist, and before too long, much of Syria became tributary to Babylon the kingdom. This was not an outright conquest, but it was a harbinger of things to come. The wealth of Syria, made up of trade and exotic luxury goods, invited foreign attacks. As different peoples began to forge large-scale kingdoms, the prosperity of the region was a delicious target indeed. Thanks to extensive archaeological and written materials, we know that peoples living in Syria and Mesopotamia were well connected by communications and trade. From the time of the Marian king Zimri Lim, whom we met earlier, we get glimpses of this kind of trade connectivity. For example, in one fabulous incident, a scribe recounts how a gift was sent to Hammurabi of Babylon. Unfortunately, the result was not what the Marians had hoped. Quote, 
one pair of leather sandals in the Kaftorian style, which the official Badi Lim carried to the palace of Hammurabi, king of Babylon. The sandals were returned. End quote. Ouch. Talk about the cold shoulder. Basically, what happened here was that a wealthy man or ruler in the city of Mari sent a pair of sandals as a diplomatic gift to Hammurabi. He was probably hoping, with this gift, to establish good relations, or to indicate his friendliness to the king of the most powerful city in the world. With good relations, favourable agreements or trade might transpire. Mari and its elites might prosper from the arrangement. Sadly, Hammurabi was not interested. He returned these sandals to the Marians, and so indicated that he was not interested, thank you. I suppose the modern equivalent would be when your Facebook friend request is seen, but you never get the confirmation. It stings, doesn't it? Obviously, Hammurabi had his eye on the wealth of Mari and the connections that it had throughout Syria. Incidentally, that great wealth was indicated by the very gift that the Marians had sent to Hammurabi. The sandals that this official had sent to Hammurabi, in the, quote, Kaftorian style, actually would have come from Crete. Kaftorian refers to the Minoans of Crete, the sailors and traders extraordinaire, who produced leather sandals that wound up in Syria, then were taken to Babylon, then were rejected by King Hammurabi himself. I guess it's not the most inspiring story, but those were some well-travelled sandals indeed. Sometime after rejecting the sandals, Hammurabi took the inevitable next step, and went to war. Around 1760 BCE, he attacked Mari, conquered it, and burned it to the ground. Like the sack of Ebla by the Akkadians 500 years before, this was a bloody and painful event. The town was put to the torch, its palace ransacked, its people slaughtered, raped, or enslaved. Hammurabi's men savaged Mari, plundered it, and left it to ruin. Mari was the second great city to suffer at the hands of people from Mesopotamia. The Babylonians and the Akkadians both, not to mention the Assyrians, tried to extend their way out of Iraq into Syria, across a most prosperous and strategic part of the world. Why did they do this? Well, we've touched on some of the reasons already. Reasons like the fantastic wealth of Syria, its position as a sort of crossroads between west and east, north and south, also the pressures of climate change, drought, and the agricultural crises which follow. And that's not even getting into the general megalomania of warlords looking to build empires in their own image. I could go on at length about how this little nexus of the world is so important, so strategic, that it invites outside greed and intervention. But I won't. History speaks for itself. Whether you're talking about Namri Sin, Shamshi Adad, Hammurabi, Ashurbanipal, Alexander, Heraclius, Saracens, Crusaders, Mongols, Ottomans, English, French, Americans, or that colossal bastard Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, warlords have arisen in every age, desperate to claim the golden land of Syria and the fertile crescent of Mesopotamia as their own dominion. From Antioch to Arabia, this is a land that is so valuable that people will go to horrible lengths to control it. Now some are kinder than others, but in the end, the result is the same. Syria becomes the battleground of faraway kingdoms and empires. 
Now much of this may seem like the disappeared dust of history, but in the next episode we're going to hear a story from a Syrian man whose life tale is startlingly similar to what many people in Syria are experiencing today. Join me for episode 3 of Syrian Tales, which we have titled The Refugee Prince.